Tree Talks podcast acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters on which this podcast is produced. We recognize their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting this coastline and its ecosystem since time immemorial. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to season two Tree Talks podcast, the podcast that branches out into the world of trees one episode at a time. I'm super excited to start this season with our first guest. Yeah, it would be good for me to have sound. That would that would help. There we go. How's that? Yeah, perfect. Hi. And how are you going? <laughs> good. <laughs> um, we're school holidays uh, here in Tassie. I'm actually down in Hobart. Um, uh, for the next couple of days with my little boy and are all budding arborists by proxy. Yesterday we um, were at the Anglesey Military Barracks and there's a really interesting uh, Tassie blue gum there, eucalyptus globulus, that has this really fascinating history. It's been on site for lots and lots of years. It had some really significant basal decay in the 80s. So some thoughtful property manager put um, a third of a cubic metre of concrete into the trunk of the tree, um, which was just really fascinating. And I actually went and had a look at the um, at the tree and it had more or less occluded that decay. If you didn't know what you were looking for, you would have absolutely no idea. But this tree is really important on site and so the barracks has taken lots of sort of precautions to ensure the long-term retention of the tree. So they've done some amazing reduction pruning on it. Uh, they had three dynamic bracing systems in the tree and they had a regular inspection program. So I was like, yes, you guys are really kicking amazing goals, but it's, it is really a, a pretty remarkable tree and, and my little boy learned all about that. Oh, that's so cool. I remember this is the one you were talking about at the women's um, um, camp. Yeah. 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 What a fun <laughs> holiday. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, and this is kind of the interesting thing about being an arborist, isn't it? We don't go into this occupation because it was what is available. I think people that tend to be drawn to trees, are passionate about trees in their professional career, but we're also pretty passionate about trees in our in our private lives. And I think um I think no if you're an arborist, no matter where in the world you are, you're always going to find something to pique your interest because yeah. there are trees everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Anna, thanks for having me on uh Tree Talks this morning. My name is Beth James and I am an arborist who has worn many hats uh, over the last 20 years, I'm really passionate about um, trees in the in the urban environment because they offer, in my opinion, so much um, joy to our cities. We have the obvious benefits that uh, trees provide in terms of shade, but I'm really interested in the influence of trees in placemaking in our in our cities, and that trees can be these beautiful. Um, intergenerational elements of the landscape that families can picnic under and have significant celebrations under and uh, when they have friends and families that live interstate uh, or have moved away from home, when they come back home, they have this sense of belonging uh, 
based on the, the trees that they recognised. I know when I was living in Melbourne and I would come back home to Launceston, I would love looking out the, the, the window of the plane, looking at the familiar trees along the Tamar Valley and being able to pick out my favourite trees in City Park if we were um, lucky enough to have that uh, particular flight route. So um, love trees, love cities and love the way that trees make what would otherwise be a really kind of hostile environment somewhere um, that is enjoyable and pleasurable, not just for individuals, but groups and generations uh, of people. Um, in terms of my career, I uh, studied agroforestry at UTAS while the dinosaurs were still uh, walking around Tassie. That's a, that's, a, that's a very bad mum joke there, but it was a long, a long time ago and at the time the Regional Forest Agreement had just come in to Tassie and I guess I sort of in one hand while I was at uni I was looking at agroforestry as a sustainable practice to improve land management and then on the other hand was having a look at some of these forest practices that were happening like table logging just going oh I feel really conflicted because I kind of knew I had always wanted to work with trees but realised that forestry probably wasn't um, probably wasn't the place for me. And I think forestry, and I've got to put a caveat here, I'm not here to bash um, forestry at all. I think there are absolutely ways that we can utilise um, forest products, but I think um, sometimes harvesting old growth forest to me doesn't really <clears throat> excuse me, doesn't kind of make sense because in, in my opinion, old growth forests are worth more for their ecological values and the amount of timber that um, we can get out of them from a forestry perspective. Anyway, that's a, probably a conversation for uh, <laughs> for another day, so we'll pop a pin in that. Um, so after I worked out that I didn't necessarily want to work um, in forestry, I moved, to, um, I moved to Melbourne and spent a couple of years studying horticulture and I suppose that's where my interest in placemaking came in the way that we can create beautiful public open spaces where people can go and, and recreate and just kind of decompress as well um, and there's certainly been a lot of scientific evidence to show that green spaces have these amazing um, uh, the, this amazing capacity to reduce cortisol levels so to reduce our stress hormones and, and just make us feel grounded. And I think and I think it kind of stands like it's great that there is that scientific information there, but it kind of it kind of makes sense that humans evolved in green spaces and that's where we feel best. And so it kind of makes sense that even in these really artificial urban environments, we still need green spaces to bring the stress levels down, to remind us we're not being chased by apex predators and that we can connect in safe spaces. Um, so I studied horticulture, but I was like, and you know, trees are a little part of that, but I was like, I really, really love trees. Um, so how can I bring trees into horticulture? And at about that time, I did, I think, what a lot of people in their 20s do, I went overseas, I lived in the UK for a couple of years and I lived in New Zealand for a year. And when I was in New Zealand, I met some arborists and that really kind of blew my mind because I didn't know there was a job where you could work with trees 
but you were caring for trees because of the amenity that they could provide. You weren't caring for trees for the products that they could provide, but rather all of the benefits that they could afford for community. And so when I left New Zealand, I came, came back to Melbourne again, came back to NMIT, who are now Melbourne Poly, and said, hey, I've discovered that there's a boriculture. I want to be an arborist. And so um, one of the lecturers there uh, at the time was like, enrol, you need to be working for a company. And I did work for a, a practical, a boricultural company for about three months, smack bang in the middle of summer. Um, and at that time I was like, you know what? I don't think climbing and removing large trees with a chainsaw on 40 degree days is for me. So I worked out pretty quickly that I didn't want to be a climbing arborist, but I still wanted to have the hands-on sort of practical side of caring for and looking after trees. So again, I went back to that um, amazing lecturer that I had and said, look, I'm probably not cut out for tree climbing, but what else can I do? Uh, and he said, look, potentially you can move into plant health care. So looking after the health of trees and, and, and um, providing uh, expert advice on how to manage trees in the form of being a consultant. Now this was um, in the early 2000s, so consultancy wasn't kind of a big deal and I was very lucky at the time to be picked up as a trainee by a company called TreeLogic and they're probably one of the oldest consultancy um, companies in Victoria. They actually started in the 90s. So sometimes we kind of think about consultancy as being something that's relatively new that came out of the Australian Standards for Protection of Trees. But even before that, even before there was this standard that mandated, you know, consulting arborists to write this, there, there were individuals and, and small businesses at the time that recognised the need for expertise. So um, I cut my teeth with uh, Tree Logic for about five and a half um, years, managing elm leaf beetles. Obviously, Victoria has an amazing collection of um, uh, English elms and Dutch elms. They're actually really, um, even though they're European trees, we're really lucky to have them here because we don't have Dutch elm disease in Australia. And um, years later, when I was um, training some Cert 3 arborists, I had a, an English student who was like, what's that tree? And I'm like, are you serious? And it was uh, almost Prosera, so an English elm. And I'm like, that's an English that's an English elm, but he had come from a part of the UK where Dutch elm disease had completely decimated all of the elm trees. So it, it was such an interesting thing that this this tiny this, this continent at the butt end of the world was actually a bit of a, a bit of a Noah's Ark for um, this particular type of European tree that had been locked in its um, in its natural range. So. Just, just kind of amazing and, and when I hear stories like that it makes me think how important biosecurity is here in Australia because we are so far away that we can we sort of have these insurance policies for um for exotic trees mm. anyway so uh, did a lot of um pests and disease management for uh tree logic was also involved in some really amazing palm transplants so moving big trees from, from one site um, to another. Probably one of the coolest projects I was involved in was 
moving some of the sand palms to the St Kilda um, foreshore. That was a really huge job that I was involved in. And again, really excited because I was involved in that idea of place making and setting of mood and a feel for the St Kilda um, foreshore by popping these um, palms in these public open spaces. So after Tree Logic, I went to a company called Arbico and worked for them for a few few years, um, writing uh, consultancy reports. So um, and again, I had another peer there, and we would often peer review our reports. But that was those kind of those two years. I was sort of off my training wheels. I didn't have the you know decades worth of experience and mentorship that I had had at Tree Logic, and so it was sort of okay. You know, this is this is you. You're the professional. You've got to make sure that you're writing your um, reports in a way that is fact and science based. It can't be opin your opinion as an arborist. And this is probably one of the most um, important things that I, I spend getting across to the students that I'm teaching these days is that your report shouldn't be your opinion. What you bring to the report are your observations and your interpretation of your observations based on fact and research, not just cause. Um, and so that's really sort of where I kind of honed that ability. And again, had some really lovely peers to say, oh, you've made this comment, but who else has said that? Can you please reference this? Um, and that really taught me to be a, a really quite tight and specific with my um, with my reports. So after a couple of years at Arbico, I actually jumped fence and then started to work in local government. So I started to see how all these reports were going to be used in in terms of planning permits, in terms of um, uh, local law applications for pruning and 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 removal of and again, that sort of, I suppose, honed my skills as an arborist because I recognise when you've got to read an arborist report, although it's lovely to have an 80-page catalogue of all of the trees on the site, what does that add to the project arborist, uh, sorry, the planning arborist knowledge of how the trees are going, to, um, are going to be protected? I guess the other thing that working in local government really taught me was it... it um, it misbusted this notion that um, council arborists are lazy, uneducated, and don't know what they're talking about. Working in local government, I probably worked harder than I ever had done in, in private industry because the amount of policy knowledge that you have to know is really incredible. There's a lot of interdepartmental relationships that have to be maintained, um, particularly with engineering, departments because there is a lot of opportunity to work collaboratively in that um, civil engineering space to incorporate things like water sensitive urban design into modern cities. So working out ways that we can use trees to harvest rainwater and improve the water quality that goes back into our creeks and our and our rivers. And again, that's a really exciting part of a boriculture in local government and you can get caught in the grind of issuing permits and allowing trees to be removed but for me the fun stuff was again that place making how can we make cities healthier 
more beautiful places for the people and often the wildlife and the animals, including um, animals that live in water and our invertebrates that live in water as well. Uh, so I worked at Donington, I think, for about seven years and um, had loved kind of living in Melbourne for all of this time, but had a couple of kids and the call to Tassie got the better of me. Um, and in, in, in some ways it was pretty fortuitous because at the end of 2019, um, I said to my husband, let's go home. Let's, let's, wow. let's, go, yeah, let's go back to Tassie. <clears throat> and so um, I moved back to Tassie and I had wanted to move into education for a little bit. And, um, and so Melbourne Poly got in contact with me uh, at the time and said, hey, can you come and teach some of our um, diploma students? And, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm in Tassie. And uh, the response that I got was, the whole state is in lockdown. You could be wherever you want. Can you do online teaching? Uh, and so that was wow. three, three, four years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, I did some work for Melbourne Poly. I've done some work for TAS TAFE. Uh, and now I'm coordinating the Diploma for Urban Forest Training, uh, who offer arbicultural training in Cert 3 and the Diploma um, along the eastern eastern seaboard. So I guess I'm kind of in a position now where I get to share the, the knowledge that so many people in my early career were kind enough to share with me. Um, with the new cohort of arborists coming coming through. And I think based on what I'm seeing, the future is in good hands. Oh, that's amazing to hear. I'll just, well, because you did a kind of circle. So I want to ask, so you grew up in Tassie um, in the country or what was your surroundings like? And then your reflections when you moved to Melbourne and the, was there a contrast in... <clears throat> Look, I grew grew up initially very young. We sort of lived on a little farm in a place called Holwell Gorge, which is probably maybe forty five minutes out of out of Launceston. But then, when I was about five, we moved into Launceston, which at the time, you know, I, I think it probably had a population of maybe forty five, fifty thousand. Um, so this was in the in the early eighties, but um, the landscape was still pretty heavily treed. Lots of Tassie uh, has pretty undulating landscape. Everywhere you look, you're going to see mountains with trees. Uh, Launceston itself sits um, in the Tamar Valley, and it actually sits on the convergence of three rivers: the Tamar River, the Northeast, and the Southeast River. And because there are these riparian environments, there are lots of swathes of area that just simply couldn't be developed. And so by, by virtue of that, Tassie is a, a Launceston in particular, it's a pretty, it's pretty green um, city. It was the, the third colonial city um, established in Australia. And so there are some incredible public open Bases with some really old trees. So if we sort of come back to, you know, those early sort of childhood memories that relate to trees, I think about going to City Park every weekend and 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 marvelling at the beautiful English oaks there. There are some incredible sequoias 
um, in that space, some incredible elms. And it, like when I was a child, these trees were in and of the vicinity of 150 years old. So just big kind of massive trees. And as I was saying, that kind of intergenerational relationship with public parks, my parents separated at that time. But in a way, that sort of, when I spent weekends with my dad, we spent it at City Park. And so, you know, perhaps some of the sadness, I guess, of my parents separating as a young child was moderated by these really positive experiences that we had in these incredible um, public open spaces. The other kind of interesting turning point, and, and it's such a good activity to sort of reflect on this, around that same time, Launceston um, had a tip in the suburb of Invermay, and they sort of said, we probably shouldn't have an old school tips as well, not lined, just big holes in the ground where rubbish was thrown in. Anyway, Launceston City Council made a decision to remove move the refuse site to the outskirts of town, but to convert what used to be the old tip into a public open park, which is now called Heritage Park. And as a part of the development of that site, Launceston City Council ran a lot of public tree planting days where community was basically invited to come in and plant the tube, tube stock. And again, I love this idea. Now, whether or not Launceston City Council were like, we don't have enough staff to plant the tube stock, let's get the community involved, or whether or not there was someone thinking, let's get the community involved and they will be proactive in the management of this open space moving mm. forward, I'm not sure. But I remember absolutely, as a very young girl, going and planting tube stock, knowing that I was planting these trees and that they would grow to be big trees that I would see um, as an adult and that other people would enjoy. And I take my own kids now to Heritage Park and as we, oh you know, God. cruising about, I'm like, oh, I think this was the bank where I did some planting, which was super, super cool. The other cool little tree reflection was um, I live around the corner from a primary school, although I went to lots of primary schools because my mum was a primary school teacher, but they always had plants for sale. And, and I come from a big family of gardeners. And I remember from a young age, mum saying, don't buy annuals. They're expensive and you only get them for one year. It's best to buy shrubs or even better to buy trees because they're long lasting, right? So, yeah, good. so out, 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 of, out of economics, more than anything yeah. else, I'd go to school base and I would be looking for trees to buy because, you know, it was almost a bit of a people, I'll buy mum a tree because that'll be long lasting, that'll be great value for money. And to this day, my mum's property is full of these amazing trees that, you know, I've purchased from local school fates and I think it got to a stage where she was like probably no, no more big but again her backyard got to um uh, to Blackwoods the case in Melanoxalan that I had grown from seed again as as a as a school activity going okay um we've got to soak these we've got to soak the seeds in order to germinate them or they could be smoked in order to germinate them 
And I think that was probably a, a, a cool primary school teacher that we had mm. who would have had to have covered life cycles as a part of the natural curriculum and had just decided, okay, I'm going to teach life cycles to students through the lens of plant growth. Let's do it um, using Blackwoods. And, and at the time, um, it was a rural school that my mum was teaching at and I went with her. So it kind of made sense to grow things like Blackwoods that the country students could then take home and plant in windbreaks and stuff on their, um, and stuff on their farm. So there are a kind of a couple of um, pivotal childhood moments that I can look back on and go, Oh, that was the you know that was that was the start of what has become a, a twenty year relationship with trees. Yeah. Yeah. How amazing that you can, you know, as a kid you planted those, and especially from seed, I think that's amazing that somebody taught, you know, water plus smoking because that's a, a core aspect within Australia to to have that shared as a kid, and then yeah like go through your experience travel around the world and then come back to a place to see those oh my gosh it just sounds it's just um, yeah I think it's amazing was there a lack of nature when you came to the city Melbourne then was it a noticeable um change or have you always just kind of looked like oh the place has trees so that I'm happy as long as that I think you probably hit the nail on the head. So for the time that I lived in Melbourne, I've always lived in and around the inner city, mainly through Carlton and North Carlton. And in that respect, even though it is the inner city, I had pretty close access to places um, like Royal Park, Carlton Gardens. And, and then, you know, when I did kind of need my bush hit per se, I only needed to ride across Mary Creek and then go up and down the Mary Creek Trail and even though it's not um, the the environmental buffer zone is not massive I could get that sense of being in quite natural a natural environment just by riding up and you know up and down and in fact when I first moved to Melbourne one of the and again this is pre everyone having everything on a mobile phone one of the gifts a friend gave me was the Melways to get familiar. Now, do you know what the Melways is? No. no? <laughs> this is a blank facial expression. Oh, okay. So the, so the Melways was an A4 book that was a, a, a map of Melbourne. Essentially, right. every single suburb. So pre-GIS and everyone having access to Melbourne, mm-hmm. on your work orders, you'd have someone's address, but then you would have... Um, a Melways reference, would, which would be like um, uh, 54H2. So it would be page 54, column H, row 2, and that's where the address would be. Mm-hmm. And that was the primary way of communicating locations yeah. in Melbourne. Yeah. Probably, up, I would say up until maybe 2010, 2015, when things like Google Maps became far more... Um, far more accessible yeah. but the thing is so I got Melways looked at where I was living and then and again I can absolutely remember doing this looking at where the green spaces were and then looking at where the bike paths were so that I could be connected with these um with the green spaces and, and to kind of note the difference 
And again, Victoria being new, and you know, like I had a car, and I was like, all right, I'm going to go for a drive to Warburton, or um, you know, I'm 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 going to engage with the national park to become familiar with with these spaces. So I I don't know that um, I necessarily found where I lived in Melbourne really stark. I know when I started looking um, like doing tree surveys for large-scale development in the outer eastern suburbs when that sprawl was starting to happen um, in the early 2000s I remember thinking oh gosh this is this is not good because mm. the um, the road reserves were quite small the buildings were packed in and even then and I think um, you, you know like I was recognizing there's no scope for people to get big trees in their um, backyards yeah. and nature strips are really small. So I think even back then I was wondering, not thinking about the urban heat island effect yeah. and the way that trees can mitigate that, but just, again, thinking about that placemaking. What yeah. are these places going to be like in 15 or 20 years? Because mm. you can't have the big trees that mark where this park is or mm. that mark you know, Mrs. Jones's house or yeah. the mark particular areas. So to help develop um, the identity of an area. And look, some housing estates have done it really well. Other housing estates haven't done it quite as well. And again, I understand the need to get low cost yeah. housing. Totally get that. But like, I, I think there is scope in those spaces to think about planning a lot more mm. and how trees can get in. And of course that's sort of in the it's in the it's in today's zeitgeist. Everyone knows the importance of trees. And so I think there are less developments happening that are like that. But certainly in, in the early two thousands I was going, Oh gosh, I would hate to live in one of these housing estates mm. because it's never going to be able to you're never going to be able to replicate the landscape mm. that we had sort of in sections of the inner city where there were centre median strips where you could put 20 metre tall poplars. So even though we're living in high density in that mm. space, there was a lot of shade provided from that shared public space yeah. that you're not necessarily going to see in those larger scale housing developments. Yeah. Was there only so much you could say? Like you, you obviously saw the importance of trees in the landscape, but then you also see the plans of of the development. And when you're saying observations, like how much say does an arborist have on retaining trees in in your report writing? So in the early sighting of greenfield sites, so greenfield sites are any site that hasn't been developed in right. the past. So typically, it's going to be agricultural land and you're out there surveying what vegetation is there, the quality of the vegetation and whether or not that vegetation is worthy of retention. And at that stage, all you're doing is you're providing arbicultural advice, even though I said, oh, you know, it's not an opinion, but arbicultural advice on whether or not these trees are going to be suitable for retention within the context of a large-scale development. Um, the decision as to whether or not those trees are retained is going to fall to the planning arborists in local government who then get 
um, the plans for the proposed housing estate and if they're good at what they do, they'll cross-reference that with the arborist report that said, oh, hang on, there was a cluster of four river red gums um, in this particular area. The arborist has estimated these trees to be a certain age based on potentially aerial imagery that they were able to access. When I have a look at your plan, there's a shopping centre there now. That doesn't marry up. Maybe we could create a pocket park in this particular location to retain those trees and relocate it. But again, it comes down to the planners at local government or potentially private planners that might have been um, engaged to assist with, with the development. And again, that's education, just to say, look, if you've got, and, and ultimately with green field sites, and it's easy for me to say as an arborist because I don't have to think about the economic viability of the development, but I think trees worthy of retention really should be then dictating where the roads are, where the schools are, where the houses are, <clears throat> um, uh, and then building the estate around the trees rather than trying to squeeze the trees mm. uh, into the estate. The other, um, the other thing that um, one of the arborists uh, that I used to work with at Stonington said, even if you force people to keep trees that are so-so, and those trees then might decline and necessitate removal in five or ten years, what that means is you still have the space to put a new tree in. Yeah. So you've kind of future-proofed that space. Whereas if you go... Uh, that tree has a, um, a low to moderate retention rate based on its age, based on the fact that it's got decay, history of branch failure, blah, 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 blah. We should get rid of it. Well, then the developer's going to go, great, that's a bit of extra space. Whereas if you compel someone to keep space for a tree and the tree doesn't succeed post-development, mm -hmm. you've got the area to put a new tree in. And I think that's actually, yeah, really 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 important you know yeah. we should we should all be able to see canopy trees that is trees 10 10 meters plus from the windows that we look out of in our houses or mm. our apartments you should mm. be able to see that you should be able to comfortably walk to the shade of a tree without getting sunburned you know yeah. like i think there are I think access to trees should be a fundamental human right, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that was one point. And then the other question was the other side. So when we're talking about policies and things, so we've retained a tree in somebody's um, private property. And then a few comments that you get when council that you hear is this tree is too big. It should be in a park or, and why do I have to, why is this tree protected if it's maybe of a certain size and things why do I have to pay for permission when it's my my land um look there are actually lots of situations where um local government and state government enforce particular requirements on properties and probably the the, the one that springs to mind the most are easements Sometimes private properties actually have easements, so drainage easements in the back of them where 
um, wastewater from multiple properties might um, flow through easements in the back of your property. <clears throat> and when you have an easement on the property, that um, means that there are things you can and cannot do <clears throat> excuse me, on that section of land. Even though it's inside your boundary and it's inside your property, you can't build on an easement, yeah? If you're planning on doing some digging, there are requirements for you to do checks. So dial before you dig, or I think that's been um, renamed quite recently, um, and you may require permits to do that. So to say, oh, it's, un it's unfair that I need permits to do something on a um, chattel or something, a fixture to my property, well, you already have to do that in, in, in lots of other circumstances. If you are living in a property that's got a heritage overlay on it, for instance, you're going to need permission potentially to paint your fence, to redo your fence. You um, will have requirements on the colour of your roof. You will have requirements on how much of your um, open space you can pave or, or, or seal. So... Um, requiring permits to do something to a tree uh, is one facet of the permit requirements that may be um, required for that property. And I think all owners have, they have to follow due diligence. Before you purchase a property, you have to understand what your responsibilities are as a property owner. And if you do not like those responsibilities, go and find another block of land. You know, like don't don't purchase a property that might have an agreement on it that says that a tree has to be retained and then complain about the maintenance costs of it. All of this information is typically um, uh, visible on um, websites like VicPlan, where you can actually jump on, have a look at the site, have a look at the overlays, have a look at the zoning, and then you can call up council and find out if there are any other agreements that relate to it. And if you're not comfortable with the maintenance of that, find something else, you know. You're not going to buy a heritage-listed property that requires a specific type of maintenance if you're not going to be able to afford that ongoing. Mm -hmm. Same with trees. And, and even trees in private property provide amenity to the greater community, right? And so that tree isn't just your tree and your burden, yeah? Yeah. You get the benefits of it, but so does the rest of the community. And so working in local government, and this is kind of the whole purpose of local government. You are there, when you work in local government, you are there to advocate for everyone that lives within your jurisdiction, mm -hmm. so within your council boundaries. Um, and, and that includes the people that get the enjoyment from the tree and their neighbours' property and potentially the wildlife that gets the benefit from that. You know, it's, it's a real privilege to live in an urban area and be able to see native animals. But in order to do that, we have to provide them with habitat. And to provide them with habitat, we kind of have to protect some of the trees, really specific trees, native trees in particular, that have the capacity to provide, you know, to provide that habitat. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a, having a large tree in your property is a privilege in, in my mind. I totally understand, you know, 
particularly if they're eucalypts, uh, and I know myself, I've got four um, eucalyptus viminalis at the moment, and they're currently shedding their bark, and I'm out there every second day picking up armfuls of armfuls of um, bark off the footpath and off uh, outside my property and inside my property. But I also recognise that, that these trees are habitat for brush-tailed possums, ring-tailed possums. I've seen about eight different types of birds utilising this tree regularly. And I just go, you know, this is, this is part of it. And when I'm out on the street collecting the bark, there are people that walk along my road and everyone wants to kind of have a bit of a chat. And so there is this kind of weird secondary benefit that I gain community connection because people want to stop and have a bit of a chat to me about these trees because the other side of the road doesn't have any trees at all and my trees shade the footpath so people inherently will walk up mm. outside of the road so that they can be in shade and it might not even be a conscious decision that they're making on a subconscious level when you look up a road or a street and you've got two options the not shaded side or the shaded side mm. on a hot day subconsciously you're going to want to walk on the shaded side because you want to be cool Mm-mm. I love it. You've covered so many things and there's so many ways that we could go um, through. I like that we've gone through um, kind of like full circle on everything and that you've seen both both sides of um, like personally, well, actually multiple sides. There's like growing up and then seeing nature and connection and, and, and things and it's working and seeing how you interact with people who want to live around it and then it's also yeah the the law um council kind of side of what requirements there i think um i love that you you how you explain council in a really simple way of just ensuring it's there for everybody um i feel like the way we develop it's people in um building high offences and making sure there is a boundary between everybody and this is my space and not your space but I love that you said that it's about ensuring everybody lives together and how we interact and connect with each other I really feel there's a lack of that um, which then creates more frustration when people don't understand why they have to do certain things yeah definitely and again this isn't just me kind of talking from my perspective, there is my, my husband is a is a psychologist, right? And so I, I read a lot of his journal, you know, like the the um, APS journals that come through, and 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 so I'm sort of I often will look at green and environmental spaces through the lens of um, mental health as well, and one of I guess one of the most significant um, contributors towards the decline in mental health is a lack of connection. So when we build up fences and when we create compounds, we are automatically isolating ourselves from the community that is going to make us feel part of something bigger, part of something a little bit more, you know, wholesome. Mm. And, um, and I think... Yeah, if we can start lowering fences and, and breaking down this notion of compounds, and yes, it will mean that sometimes we have to have uncomfortable conversations with our neighbours, like 
your tree is growing over my veggie patch and now my veggie patch isn't getting enough sun for my veggies to grow, would it be okay if I trim some of your branches back so that my veggie patch can get some more light? It's an, it can be an uncomfortable situation, but the thing is, as adults, we have to be able to have uncomfortable situation, um, conversations and then what we might find afterwards would be that the tree owner didn't even know the impact. And that was my experience in, in local government often, was that one party just actually had no idea of the implications mm. of their vegetation on another property. And once it was brought to their attention, they were like, oh, my gosh, yeah, no problem. Actually, I've got an arborist that looks after this other tree in my property and he's coming over in a couple of months' time. I'll get him to prune the trees so that, you know, so that um, you have that. But now there's a relationship between those two neighbours. They know each other's names. They know that this person actually really kind of likes trees and has an, has an arborist. And, you know, there might be other conversations that, that flow on and help the neighbours feel less isolated because they know one another you know community connection is so important and and think about it in lockdown where did people go when people were locked in their houses for 20 hours a day where did they go to get connection it was public open spaces wasn't it people mm. I, I know parks were the um parks were utilized far more during lockdown than any other time yeah. um, in urbanised history, right? Mm. Because people could come together in these public open spaces and, and become connected. And I think post-lockdown, some people have kind of maintained that park interaction, you know, that they now go to that park on the weekend, not because it's the only space that they can go to, but because they have friends there, they have they have people in their community that have the same kind of dog that they do and their dogs can go and have a play while they have a bit of a coffee and, and catch up. So, again, community connection is really important. Public open spaces facilitate that is important. And if you are lucky enough to have um, a private open space that can facilitate trees, by not closing that off, you are... Um, potentially creating an environment where you can engage with your neighbours and help feel connected and secure and part of the community. Yeah, I really enjoyed where you went and what you've covered. Like, I know we were going to talk more about law, uh, policies and things, but um, okay. yeah. <laughs> I, I really love it. I do have the one question I ask everybody. Oh. Um, if trees could talk, what do you think that they would say? Like humans, we need to be connected. Plant us close together because together we're stronger. Thank you so much for your time. I love talking to you. And if anybody's listening and they've re um, recognized your voice from the women's um, <laughs> camp recordings, I love that you are, the way you describe anything is just always educational, always gentle. And, you know, it's never this... I know everything and listen to me. It's just kind of like, this is an opinion. And it's it's just, I think you're a great storyteller. And I think storytellers are, are a key part in um, education and things. So I'm so glad that you're also in education and, and 
teaching the next next generation. So I, I want to appreciate, I want to thank you. I really appreciate your time. And I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge, not just for me today, but for, yeah, for other people out there in, in, within the industry and um, with and community as well. I know you take your time to talk to community. So thank you so much. No problem at all. <laughs> uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you.